becoming simply a technician. There's no feeling, there's no drama, there's no passion. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bot? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out and enjoy a song? It's about time in a film nothing happened. What a brave choice a director made. What a, what a pioneer this guy is. Let's do nothing. Do you know anything about the art of film production? Well, I like to think so. Is this where I go to be a star? This is where you go to sacrifice, learn your craft, and work hard. Movies. Mm -hmm. Well, let's yeah. talk movies, okay? Pick this up. Control sound. Roll camera. Speed. Welcome to Scene by Scene. This is a film discussion podcast where we break down story and technique from a filmmaker's and film lover's perspective. My name is Joe. And my name is Justin. And on this episode of Scene by Scene, we're going to continue our discussion of Taiwanese new wave cinema. Justin, this week was your pick. What did you go with? I picked Tai Ming Liang's Rebels of the Neon God. I chose this film partially because I think there's like a direct lineage from Terrorizers to this film. I feel like the first couple films in Tai's filmography feel very much influenced by Terrorizers and the structure of Terrorizers. And so they're very similar films, but I think as we discuss... Even though the structure is very similar, there's a lot of differences, I think, enough to make for an interesting discussion. We had talked last time about, I think when we were having a discussion about what whether you'd recommend terrorizers to someone and the idea of, would you recommend terrorizers over something like Yee Yee or A Brighter Summer Day? And I think we kind of had opposite opinions on that. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, you can check out that previous episode, but my stance was I did feel like the Terrorizer was maybe a little bit more accessible due to its length and runtime, although it comes with complications. I bring it up because you can get into this. I think you're fairly unfamiliar with Tai Ming Liang's work. I sort of picked this film as the first film we were going to talk about for this director. I could have picked a later film of his, and I chose an earlier film, partly because I saw that connection between this and Terrorizers. I do think in a similar way, it's a little bit more accessible than some of his later work. But I bring up the recommendation thing again, because now I'm second guessing myself and thinking maybe that wasn't the best approach because I don't think this is his best film. I kind of said that last time with Yang. It's like, well, why would I recommend Terrorizers over Yi Yi when I think Yi Yi is sort of the masterpiece, his masterpiece? It's the film that theoretically I think would make you kind of fall in love with him. I think maybe we fell into a similar situation here where maybe I should have recommended one of those later works that is probably considered a masterpiece over the more quote unquote accessible film. Because maybe you kind of walked away from the film feeling a little underwhelmed. I don't know. How do you feel? Maybe we're we're going to work a little backwards in this episode. But I think that I, I was maybe a little lukewarm on this one. Now, with that being said, you know, something that I was taking into consideration across the entire film was this is essentially a director's first feature film. I believe he did three television movies or made for TV movies prior to this one. But this one had a different intent with a, a traditional like theatrical experience. I think maybe in a way I'm forgiving of certain things because of that. Where I struggled when it came to uh, Rebels of the Neon God is 
more so than anything that I've watched from Yang, I've very much felt at a distance. I didn't necessarily find myself overly emotionally connected or, you know, there wasn't a lot that resonated with me. Now, there's a lot of things from a technical and filmmaking perspective that I thoroughly enjoyed. And I could see how this filmmaker, this director could become one of those auteurs, somebody that people seek out his work. So I I think that my struggle with it is more rooted in the connectivity that I maybe didn't feel. Did you say that you don't feel that way with Yang, that disconnect or that separation between viewer and character? In most cases, I don't feel that with Yang. The Terrorizer, as far as his films go, I probably did feel more disconnected there than I have with Taipei Story or anything else. I didn't feel it to this degree. Okay, and so this is interesting because this is part of the reason why I think there's there's a very strong connection to Terrorizers, is that I think we both agree that Yang's later work, there is speaking for just the two of us, we both get emotionally sort of connected or emotionally invested in those characters. And I think Terrorizers is is one of those films that is maybe sort of different. I mean, I think when we talked, I did find myself sort of invested in the characters, despite the fact that he's doing things to keep you at a distance, I think intentionally. And I think Tai Ming Liang does the same thing here. The interesting thing is that I think as Yang progressed in his career, he would sort of try to make you connect to his characters to a greater extent. Whereas I think Tai Ming Liang kind of continues this type of filmmaking throughout. It just gets more polished. So maybe he will never be a a director that you really connect with. Like Terrorizers, like Rebels of Neon God, and like Tai Ming Liang's later work, I do think they're humanist films, meaning they're There's a great sort of compassion for its characters, but it does, mainly in the filmmaking style, does create a disconnect intentionally. You know, if we one day get to one of his later films, I think this would be an interesting discussion. Even as his filmmaking gets more meticulous, I think you can see that like he's in complete control of the medium. He is still kind of continuing the same type of filmmaking and maybe you won't won't like it the way I do. And to be clear, I mean... I did not dislike this film. Admittedly, you you probably are a little bit higher on this than I am. But I want to go back to something that you stated about timing Liang. When it comes to timing Liang's work, I have two questions that I want to pose to you. One, you know, we've touched on Yi Yi as kind of being this in our perspectives, the masterwork of Yang. In the case of timing Liang, what would you point to? Because admittedly, I came into this having not experienced anything that he's made. I haven't watched any of his films. So this definitely was my first exposure to him. If you had to say this is the film of his you have to watch, it would be? I don't know. The one that I connect to for some reason, and I always think that talking about what it is that makes you really kind of just connect with a movie, it's really kind of hard to put into words. I think Ty has a couple of those films for me, and the number one is Viva L'Amour, which is his next film, his follow-up to Rebels of the Neon God. There is still that sort of distance between the audience and the viewer, but I find myself emotionally invested in the characters. 
that distance is created through the fact that you really don't know much about the characters. You kind of are just watching them go through the day. And then there's also the filmmaking where it's shot from a distance. Yet I somehow just connect with it on an emotional level. I can't really explain why that is. Um, I would compare that to Yang's later work. Even in Yang's later work, there is a bit of that distance, especially in the filmmaking. And we sort of connect despite that. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think that's incredibly fair. And again, we're not here to talk about Yang. That was our previous episode. I think it's challenging not to talk about one of these without the other because, you know, they were kind of part of that revolution sort of coming up together to an extent. There were a few moments while I was watching Rebels of the Neon God that I felt like this is something I'd see in a Yang film. I think that's really interesting to me because while there was a lot of things that I saw in this that, yeah, I could see this in a Yang film, there's also a clear departure at various points as well, where there are moments where you'd never see Yang do this. This film felt like, you know, a first-time director trying to find his way in what works for him, really, as filmmakers ourselves and as filmmakers who'd like to make our own feature, I think there's a lot to take away from this and and a lot you can glean. I, I had another question I wanted to pose to you because you mentioned that a lot of these films have, you know, that similar style that personally left me a little cold and disconnected. And, and again, like with all due respect to you, if you connected, do you think that... There's that carryover from film to film because he just found this style that works for him so well. Clearly, you're not him, but why would you venture a guess that there is that commonality? In terms of why he sort of continued on the style and why it started this way, you're right. I don't really have an answer. I can speculate a couple of things. I mentioned last time that with the Taiwanese New Wave, and depending on the source, you might see Taiming Liang referred to as like a second wave of that movement, not as like a sort of a founding member of that movement. I briefly mentioned filmmakers like Ho Shao Shen, who made it sort of his mission to like photograph films in ways that are not traditional, just to be different, similar to, you know, what you'd see with the French New Wave and like Odar or something with the jump cuts and things. It was like, I'm doing it this way because they say it shouldn't be done this way. And so I think part of making a film this way is directly from that. Making his first film, he probably is being inspired by these films. In a country that didn't really have a film industry for a long time, all of a sudden you have films from your home country or the country you've been in for many years in the case of of Thai. He wasn't born there. But all of a sudden, those films are are now being made. And of course, they're going to be a huge inspiration on your work. So it's just kind of continuing that tradition in a certain way. Now, if you watch this and then you watch Days as an example, his most recent feature, you will see an evolution, but not maybe in the way you'd expect. He honestly kind of doubles down on some of the things that create that disconnect to the extent where there's even less camera movement. Shots hold longer. The pace overall gets much slower. Clearly, he saw something in that style that spoke to the types of movies he wanted to make. And I think, especially with this film and a lot of his other films, they are about loneliness. They are about people who can't connect with people around them using a style that creates a disconnect between the characters and the viewer 
may be a good way to portray that loneliness or that disconnect. And maybe that spoke to him. I do have, I do have a quote. This is in an interview where they were discussing his screenwriting in general. And I think he was actually asked with films with very little dialogue and very little in terms of big events, what do you even write into your screenplays? This quote was partly in response to that. He says, I've seen many narrative films, films with plots. Some are wonderful and I like them. But when I make my own films, if I also make narrative-based films with plots and performance, then my films would be just like those. Everyone knows what sort of impact those films can make, but that impact can only reach a certain level. They can't go any further. In terms of making films that are maybe plotless and slow and photographing them in a way that is maybe untraditional, especially in Western films, he thinks he can bring something, some greater meaning to those films that can't be accomplished in a more traditional way. And whether he's successful in that, I think that's for each person to decide, but I think that's part of it. I have another quote. I'll read this real quick because I think this might add something and then I'll let you respond. He says, I prefer some distance. I don't decide what the best distance is, how two people can get close and not feel uncomfortable. My films treat human relationships like an experiment. There's no real conclusion. They're always experimenting, experimenting with that distance. For example, when I deal with my family relationships, it's close to my personal experience. When I am at home, I feel like everyone looks uncomfortable. But when I leave, I begin to miss everyone. He's acknowledging that distance, both physically and I guess maybe emotionally, is part of his work in general. I think that last quote actually is very helpful and Now, as I think back about Rebels of the Neon God and maybe just some of my emotional journey through it, I think that makes a lot of sense. And with that, maybe I'm kind of thinking about it in in a different light. I want to be clear about one thing when I I kind of said at the beginning, I, I didn't like it quite as much as you do, or maybe even as much as I was expecting, if I haven't said this yet, this is a film that I wish that I had watched at least once more before we did this episode, because I do feel like there's a lot to it. As I was watching Rebels of the Neon God, all I wanted to do was put down my notes and ignore that and just focus on the content and the substance. And Maybe part of why I feel the way I do about the film isn't so much anything wrong with the film or what timing Liang was trying to do or accomplish, but just the responsibilities of putting together a podcast like this. It's one of those films that as soon as it was over, I did want to go back and and kind of re-experience it. And, and that's, maybe that needs to be my takeaway between the quote that you just read and my feeling afterwards of wanting to immediately revisit it. I think maybe that's more telling. I feel like we'll have to get into some of the details. Should I struggle through a plot synopsis just so we can kind of get a sense of where we're going? But before you do that, just so our listeners are aware, if this is your first time listening to us on the Scene by Scene podcast, this discussion will be pretty spoiler heavy. I fully anticipate we're going to, especially with this one, give away a lot of plot details. So if you haven't watched Rebels of the Neon God and you don't want the 
film spoiled for you, definitely hit pause, come back to us. Justin, tell us about Rebels of the Neon God. This is not necessarily a very complicated film to describe. When we do these, I try to describe it in my own words rather than reading something. And hopefully one day I'll get better at this. I think I'm notoriously bad at trying to explain the events of a film in a way that makes sense. But here goes. (laughs) I think this is another one of those multi-character mosaic films in which we're cross-cutting between several characters and their lives are connected in some way. I think this film actually shows the connection quite early, whereas, as an example, Terrorizers takes a little bit of time to kind of show all of the sort of ways these characters' lives are intertwined. This one wastes no time, I think, getting to that. I think that's, at least with two characters, part of the point. The film follows Ozzy, and uh, Ping, I would say, you know, teenagers, young adults. And we follow them as they steal coins from phone booths and they steal arcade game motherboards and try to sell them. And they hang out with uh, Kui. And it's sort of about them kind of just hanging out. They go to restaurants, they eat, they drink. And then we also follow Shao Kahn, his struggle with his parents, mainly his father, Shao Khan is supposed to be studying for some sort of exam. Uh, after a little incident between Shao Khan's father and Azi, after this incident, Shao Khan he drops out of school and he kind of you know keeps the the refunded tuition or whatever and kind of is living on his own. And he just begins to follow Azi as he kind of wanders around Taipei with his friends. I would say Shao Kahn is the focus of the film. This is ultimately about Shao Kahn and him trying to connect with this other person through 
often destructive ways. Tell me I'm wrong about something. This is actually an area that I disagree with you because I think uh, Z is really that focal character. I think he's the one that by the end of the film, I found myself connecting with more. I don't think that there's a right or wrong way of looking at this because in the end, I feel like this is a story of a relationship in the sense that... There's these two people that have this connectivity, even though one of them is maybe less aware of it. But I think Ozzy is the character that I found myself most interested in as the film progressed. And by the end, I found myself empathizing with him, despite all of the misdoings. The other thing I'd I'd say is you summarized that quite well, because... The description on IMDb is within the gloom of Taipei, four youths face alienation, loneliness, and moments of existential crisis amidst a series of minor crimes. And I don't think that description does it justice. So you expanding upon and summarizing it from your perspective, I, I think is more far more beneficial than what other resources provide. Thank you so much. I wouldn't disagree with you that Ozzy maybe is... Well, maybe the title refers to two characters. We, we had a discussion <laughs> last time as well about who are the terrorizers. And in this case, it's rebels of the Neon God. I think it is ultimately about both of them. I think Ty's empathies fall on one a little more than the other. And I think that is Shao Kahn. That connection that at least Shao Kahn is trying to make doesn't actually happen. And they kind of at a certain point go their separate ways. We still come back to both characters. We're still focused on both characters. What you said is absolutely correct. I think part of it for me is that, again, I'm bringing maybe just a little bit of baggage to my reading of the film. Just because I know Lee Kan Shen, the actor who plays Shao Kahn, becomes a very important part of Tai Ming Liang's filmography. I know that he's got this special affection for the actor. And it feels like I read into that a little bit with this film that, you know, there's maybe a little bit more affection for that character as well. And that's not fair. I think that's important to put an asterisk next to it because going into this and until I did a little bit more research on Tai Ming Liang and, you know, some of those follow-up films, I wasn't aware that Li Kang Sheng and his Khan character comes back or is, I think it'd be fair to say, a constant in other films. I would have to double check, but I think starting this at this point, Li Kang Shen is pretty much in all of his movies. One of my takeaways as I was watching it, on the surface, it really does feel like this petty teenage level of violence and revenge. But I think underneath that, there's this feeling of longing and desire and, I guess, envy in in a way in, in some regards. I think on the surface, Shao Kahn sort of starts following Ozzy after that incident. And so on the surface, you can make the assumption that it's revenge, especially when he then destroys his motorcycle. (laughs) 
Or you can say on the surface that Azi has something that, that Shao Kahn wants, that freedom. And so he wants to kind of become him. I don't think either of those two are really what's happening here. Correct. I do think it is a, a love that manifests itself in destructive ways. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. And I just want to be clear on that because I, I do think that this is a film that if people are just watching it and only taking things at what's on the surface, I think that they're missing layers that that kind of come in underneath there. Because if we're just looking at the surface level, I think that there's a level of envy. And you touched on that with the last thing you said, having this desire, envy with Aziz's freedom and his ability to kind of do whatever he wants from his perspective, little or no repercussion. You think the desire to be or have what he has is the, I think it has layers in a way that it can work on multiple levels. And I think that is sort of what's powerful about the film. But do you think that's the, the way you view it? Not exactly. I think that's just one layer of this iceberg. I, I think that there's kind of this underlying desire in a way. Later on in the film, Khan kind of gets revenge for Ozzy smashing his father's taxi's uh, side mirror by destroying Ozzy's moped motorcycle. And he writes AIDS on there. And clearly at the time, that was sort of something associated with like homosexuality. So I think that there is a layer to this where Khan is maybe wrestling with some of those internal feelings him questioning himself a little bit, but sort of acting out. I think there's a combination of, from Shao Kahn's perspective, he wants to be him and he also wants to be with him. Mm -hmm. He has a crush on this character. Yes. And you're talking about the destruction of the motorcycle or whatever. I do think you absolutely nailed that. I do think it's about his own repressed sexuality and it's coming out in this very sort of homophobic way meaning by writing aids on someone's motorcycle it comes back to this this character wrestling with sexuality and and the feelings that he's currently experiencing when he is looking out the window he's watching as Ozzy discovers the destroyed motorcycle and he begins jumping on the bed <laughs> He's finally completed this goal of becoming Ozzy, where he can rebel in this way. He can destroy property and kind of get away with it. And he's got that freedom to do so. And it's also like, I finally got this character's attention. Absolutely. And I, at its core, the film very much is about Shao Kahn following Ozzy and... That in and of itself, I think, raises questions because, again, at the surface, it could be perceived that it's just like for some sort of revenge. But again, you know, you touch on the the longing element 
where there's so much of that desire behind it. I think another big takeaway as far as thematic elements of this film for me was a lot of karma. One of the things that I really liked how Timing Ling weaves through this is anytime there's a positive or, you know, something good that happens to a character within a couple scenes or sometimes within the same scene, it's followed by a negative reaction or response. I found that very interesting as I was watching it, but maybe to an extent I also found myself distracted by it because I found myself waiting and and asking, okay, where is the karma? When is the karma going to catch up? Can you throw out an example of a good thing and then a bad thing real quick? Yeah, to kind of stick along with the uh, motorcycle destruction that we were just talking about, we see Shao Kahn become kind of become Ozzy and sort of get that attention. And he sort of accomplished what he was what he wanted in that moment. And it's swiftly followed up by him sort of jumping on the bed and he cracks his head. There's also the success of uh, Ping and Azi stealing the the motherboards from the arcade units. You know, it's a few scenes later, but we see the the repercussions of that. There's several different moments like that that kind of come up across the film. I just found it very interesting how timing Liang just doesn't let anything get too high. I would say not until the very end with Azi and Ah Ping. Generally, things don't get too low for anybody either. I mean, you name examples that don't necessarily work with what I'm about to say, but I, I always just thought it was more about the way other characters' actions can then affect other people. That's part of, I think, this period in Taiwanese film, because I think this is present in terrorizers as well where there's this i feel this shared sort of experience where they're all citizens of taiwan have this same sort of lack of identity and and lack of place in this world and they're all kind of sharing that experience and desperately trying to find some sort of meaning in it and their actions negatively affecting other people and don't get me wrong i I think you're absolutely right with your perspective on how somebody's action can impact another person. And the the scene that my mind immediately goes to is really that first introduction, Shao Kahn first experiencing Azi when Azi's on his motorcycle and he smashes Shao Kahn's father's taxi's mirror. <laughs> What's important to know and understand is the context behind that prior to that scene, there was what I thought was just a a really good moment between Shao Kahn and his father and how the father was like, hey, let's go see a movie. And there was like this bonding moment. 
and how quickly that's undone by you know Aziz's action. So I, I think you're you're absolutely right, and to me, that's just like where my mind immediately gravitates towards. I think that's a good example. I hate to keep bringing up terrorizers, but I do think what separates this from terrorizers is, well, I think both feature characters who represent some sort of larger social issue in Taiwan, I think in both films. The difference, I think, is the way Edward Yang does it. He seems to be more focused on people's home lives, the things that happen inside their homes, and, you know, maybe a little bit more focused on the conflicting values that are sort of occurring with a more modernized Taiwan. And I think timing Liang is more focused on what happens in public places within Taiwan and less focused on what happens behind closed doors. You know, he's more focused on the fact that people can be in such close proximity to other people and still be so distant there's such a lack of connection, even though you're surrounded by all these people in a public place. And the because of that loneliness, the way people essentially waste time, the things they do to waste time to, you know, not think about or hide the fact that they're, they don't have this strong connection with someone else, whether that be like spending all your time in an arcade to sort of make up for this lack of social connection. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it it does. Um, And you kind of started this point by highlighting how Yang with the terrorizer focuses on kind of that personal familial relationship. One of the things when I was originally looking at the terrorizer, it was, I saw a lot of people call out how it focuses on, you know, Taipei as this bigger entity. And I would actually argue that timing Liang with Rebels of the Neon God, I think it crafts Taiwan as more of almost antagonistic. I I think that you just get a better sense of the struggles that Taiwan creates, even though the film is really, essentially it really is only focused on two characters with a couple supporting characters, but really it is focused on two. I feel like I got a better sense with Rebels that their struggles are associated with where they're located. The approach is similar between the two filmmakers in these particular films, but I think the issues that they're focused on are just a little bit different. The rebellion thing, obviously being part of the title and and being a large part of the events of the film, also is an important sort of thematic thing as well, which is important, I think, important to Taiwan. I imagine there was a, a point in Taiwan's history where all this sort of rebellion energy was applied to, you know, to the fight for Taiwan's independence. But we've reached a point where that sort of has settled down and Taiwan is becoming more westernized and is evolving and and Taipei specifically becoming more of a modern city that there is nothing really left to fight for. There's nowhere to like apply that rebellion energy. And so it like manifests, you know, in sort of destructive ways you see in the film. And there's references to James Dean, or at least one reference to James Dean, which leads you to Rebel Without a Cause. I do think it's sort of filtered through that sort of story where these, you know, when they have no external forces to rebel against, it leads to internal forces 
within themselves, a fight for identity or a purpose or something. And then that just manifests itself in destructive ways. But I do have a quote about the rebellion thing from Timing Liang. I think it's probably worth noting that the title is in reference to the Chinese mythology of Nisha. Um, and, and obviously, uh, Shao Kahn's mother thinks that Shao Kahn is the reincarnation of this, this god or whatever. A god that is associated with youth and rebellion, all those things. But when asked about this kind of thing, this is what Timing Liang said. I believe Nisha is in every young person, an undefinable rebellionness especially in Chinese society. All that authority, parental, moral, it opposes you. Society's values oppose you. You don't really know how to rebel. You don't even know who to rebel against, but you need to be loose somehow. You feel this need to rebel and you don't really know how to do it. And that is why you get the destruction of the motorcycle. You get the... Dropping out of the school taking that money, buying the airsoft gun. And even from Aziz's perspective, you know, the hiding out in the bathroom in the arcade until everyone leaves and stealing the motherboards out of the cabinets. Certainly you can say, oh, they're just, they're trying to make money. But I think the way in which they're approaching it is connected to this need for rebellion as well. And this lack of like any sort of direction. I kind of want to touch on the opening scene within the phone booth where uh, Z and Ah Ping, basically they break into the payphone to steal the coin box and to deal that change. One of the things that Timing Liang does phenomenally across this film is he introduces character and circumstance as well as any filmmaker I've ever seen do it. When we're introduced to, I'll say the four characters that we follow, uh, Q, uh, Ping, uh, Z, and Shao Kahn, the first time we see them on screen, you immediately get a sense of who they are. And, you know, you get a sense of their circumstance. I would go as far to say what their goals likely are or what they would hope to accomplish. Am I reaching on that one? I don't know if I would say I necessarily get a sense of what they hope to accomplish, but I don't know if they know what they would hope to accomplish. Why do you say that you get a sense of that? When we're first introduced to Akui, she just spent the night with what we eventually learn is Ozzy's brother. But you kind of get this sense because she's still there in the morning. She's not really inclined to move or leave that there's this desire or hope that there's this connection that this person wants her to stay and to, to be there. Shao Kahn, I'd, I'd say comes from the perspective of being more of that 
stronger, powerful individual. I get that sense based off of the fact that when we first see him, he stops what he's doing to kill an insect that really wasn't bothering him. And he does so in such a way that's like almost an excess. You know, instead of squishing it or he stabs it with a protractor and he sets it on his desk and he lets it kind of squirm and suffer. And I think that tells you the kind of person that he wants to be. Maybe it's less clear with Ah Ping and Ah Z. I think with Ah Ping, we don't get enough of him to truly maybe establish that foundation. I would say with Ah Z, we don't get a sense of why he's stealing this money. Because I, I do feel like he is more directionless they're stealing coins from a phone booth, and then they're immediately going to the arcade. And it just seems like you weren't really that desperate for the money. It's not about the money. It's just about a way to waste time and... But what if that is the goal for him? I mean, I don't, I don't think that's necessarily out of the realm of possibility that him doing this and us following it up with the scene where he is just going to the arcade, it, it kind of shows maybe he doesn't have a goal. And in that sense, it is establishing who he is a little bit more. He is he is directionless. I think it absolutely just establishes who he is. I don't know if it establishes what he wants, because I do think in the end, he's seeking that connection as well. Would it also be fair to say, though, until the end, I don't even know that he knows that. That is probably true. He's probably content with his life up until a certain point in the film in which it becomes clear to him that he does he's desiring the same sort of connection that I think a lot of the characters in the film are desiring. At least in those two examples with Ah Kui and Shao Kahn, that you get a sense of some sense of their desire, goal, or at least who they'd like to become. I do agree with you. And I think, you know, it's worth sort of acknowledging and praising the fact that although we we don't really get a lot about these characters, you know, everything we do get is delivered in very visual ways. I would say even like sort of very economical ways. You're right. We get one scene with this character and we instantly know like who this character is. With some of the characters, I, you do get a sense of what's to come. Either it's like a direct sort of foreshadowing or of their desires and their goals. If I could just continue with uh, Z, because again, he's the character that I kind of felt was more of that focal point. And for me, the character, I I at least kind of latched on to a little bit more. And, and maybe this supports you a little bit more as well with your perspective of he probably doesn't have a goal. He doesn't necessarily know what he wants. You know, we, we follow up him going to the arcade with him going home. Home is this small apartment. The elevator doesn't work as expected or correctly. He gets home and the kitchen's flooded. He's not even bothered by it. It's like, this is my life. This is just what I expect to a degree. To go back to what I think Tai Ming Liang does well, he incorporates these elements that function as visual metaphor, but that even if you don't necessarily understand the metaphor, they don't feel out of place the flooded apartment as an example, and maybe just water in general. 
it begins to rain at a certain point and then it clears up at the end. You know, maybe you have a different interpretation of this, but water being this representation of loneliness or disconnect. First time we see him go home, come home, the apartment's flooded. And then he starts this sort of relationship with uh, Kui, it seems like the water has gone down the drain. And then, you know, they have a series of arguments or things that happen. And then he comes home and the water's flooded and it's worse than it's ever been. And he's trying to plug it. He's stuffing towels or whatever down the drain to keep the water from bubbling back up. It's at this point where he had the possibility for this connection didn't work or it, he, you know, he messed it up or whatever. And then the rain stopping at the end of the film when it seems like everybody sort of found something, at least in that moment. There seems to be like this reconnection between Ozzy and Akui and Shao Kahn's father finally leaves the door open for his son to return. What goes on with Shao Kahn at the end and him not answering the phones, the phone at the dating call service. That he, you know, he's going home. He's sort of decided that it's time for him to return home. All these people are sort of, at least for that moment, finding some sort of comfort in whatever they have. And then that rain stops. And so I do think there is meaning to the water in this film. But even if you don't look at it, it's just like creating this atmosphere. And so I think he does this thing really well where, yeah, maybe it's a little intellectual because there's meaning behind it. But if you ignore it, it still kind of functions as character and world building. Does that make sense? You have thoughts on that? No, and I think that you're right. And because I, I said this before, and I, I think that there's two ways to look at this film. There's to watch it and just look at what's being presented to you and what's on the surface. And then there's the what are the layers underneath and that water element being another. I kind of want to go back to Shao Kahn's kind of ending there with the dating service and system and letting the phones ring. I kind of took that as more of an acceptance of who he is and what his preference might be. Yeah, I think that's there too. Absolutely. It advertised and they talk about it as being a woman's going to call and you answer. And as he's sitting there, I think that he's finding a degree of acceptance in himself that this isn't what I want. This isn't what I desire. I mean, it could just be that, you know, everything we saw from him this desire to kill the cockroach in that way, the desire to essentially leave home and, you know, live on his own. He buys the gun. He destroys the motorcycle. All this behavior is just because he's tortured about his his desires or his sexuality or whatever it is. And as soon as you come to acceptance with it, there's no need to rebel anymore. That was only a an expression of him not accepting who he was. I think it's worth talking about as well. And this goes to Tai Mingliang's skill in visual storytelling, but also just interesting character choices and interesting performance choices. Shao Kahn has like zero dialogue. He walks up to people and they seem to just know what he wants. There's the thing where he's like getting, he's dropping out of school. He's getting the refund 
it's either they just somehow know what he's there for, or we're picking up the scene at a certain point where he's already asked for what he wants, and they choose to not show that. There's a number of examples of of that. The one that I think about is when he later on is at the roller skating rink and Aqui is there. He doesn't verbalize anything to where he uses hand gestures, but that's another moment where and I guess that's just one of those things that and I'm I'm really sad to admit that I didn't pick up on this, but I don't think I, I caught that through that first watch. And the reason I, you know, I think it's an interesting choice, but the reason I, I give a little credit to Tai Ming Liang is this idea that not only have we discussed all of these things that this character is struggling with, potentially struggling with, multiple layers of like motivation, you know, the meaning of his actions, and we've interpreted all that not through dialogue, not even through like traditional characterization or anything like that i mean we don't even really hear people talk about him the mother has the one conversation with the father that he may be the reincarnation of this god and that's really it but we get it all just through the events and the performance it's one of those things that i'm only aware of also because he'll go on to make other films with this actor who's playing basically the same character it's just a very quiet performance a lot of the things that are going on with Shao Kahn in this film, the studying, the the struggling with the, the cram exams, the issues with his father and the family life, all that was taken from Lee Kan Shen's, the actor, his life. When Tai Ming Liang met him and cast him in one of his earlier films, All the Corners of the World, you know, he got to know the actor and he actually spent time with the actor and his family. And so all that kind of stuff came from his real life in a similar way to terrorizers where Yang was taking from the experiences of the actress in those events, finding their way into the film. Anything else that stood out to you, Joe? I don't think I really have much to add in regards to the story itself. I will say like one of the performances, and I guess we'll kind of get into some of the technical elements as we like to do here. I don't have a lot to say about the performances. Lee Kang, Shang, uh, you know, you kind of highlighted how good of a performance that is with really not having anything to say or, but I was actually really kind of taken with Wang Yu Wen, who plays a Q. I thought that her performance was for a character who on the surface would seem like she didn't have a lot to do. The scenes that she's in, I found myself really interested in gravitating to her and her performance. I liked her performance as well. I There is the moment towards the end of the film that doesn't quite work for me, which I, I don't necessarily blame her for, but her performance is part of that scene. I think she's really good for the most part. Before I get to that, I mean, I think it just comes down to, I think most of the actors in this film, it's they're good and there's just something compelling about them that you can just watch them. And I think you need that if you're going to hold on really long takes, you need someone who can kind of hold your attention. I think these all these actors do really well. The thing I was referring to is that moment where Ozzy and Aqui reconnect in his apartment, and they're talking about, you know, we should get out of here, we should leave. Where do you want to go? <laughs> Don't you know? 
And it's a moment that just felt, to me, a little melodramatic. Hmm. A scene that just stands out in this film. That that scene would, in a different film, feel right at home, would feel very natural. But in a film that has very sort of understated performances, it just kind of stands out to me a little bit. And in comparison, feels a little melodramatic. I don't blame the actress for that. I would have to blame Timing Liang as the person guiding this scene and guiding these performances. For some people that it might be fine. For me, it just felt a little out of place. So this is actually an area that I'm I'm going to disagree with you. I feel pretty strongly about this one. I get where you're coming from because it is the loudest and most in-your-face sort of moment that happens in this film. But... I think it works from the perspective of what we establish as far as the film goes. There's a lot of building towards specific moments that carry a lot of weight, that speak volumes, even though they do so in a very quiet fashion. So to me, this this moment felt like the loudest moment because it should have been the loudest moment because Ozzie watching his friend being beaten up and essentially near death on his bed, having that moment, that realization of maybe I need to do things differently. And Kui, when we first meeting her and kind of the smittenness she has, the yearn for the attention. And here in this moment, it all comes to a head. And while I understand maybe I would feel differently if I saw an alternate version where this is another quiet moment, I thought that this moment needed to be a louder moment to be more to kind of match certain things that have already happened. Yeah, I I can get that. You know, I feel like maybe uh, Z has like this this heavier, more sort of impactful journey to getting to this place. You did reference that. I mean, we the scene prior, they were running for their lives and well, they both got beat up, but his friend much worse. It feels like him getting to this place, it does seem like maybe her journey to getting to this place isn't necessarily as powerful, both for the audience and for her. She's crying. I just wonder if she's experienced enough that that reaction feels justified or feels earned. I think that it comes from a place of desperation, though. And I think that there's a lot of things that she does that really is rooted in that desperation. Yeah. Okay. Normally, we we start with like the visuals and talking about the cinematography, but I, I wanted to jump on the characters and the performances because you hit the nail on the head in such a quiet, subtle film. There's a lot that's going on here, and these actors are doing a ton. I mean, that's that's another thing is like, does this just come down to my taste? If something can be done in a less showy way, for lack of a better word, well, then that's the way to go. And maybe that's just my taste. And this film shows that these actors can deliver so much. You know, I gave a lot of credit to Lee, but I think it's all the actors. The actors can do so much with very little dialogue and very sort of grounded, subtle performances. 
that maybe in the end, it just comes down to, I didn't think it was necessary to go that direction. And that's just comes down to my taste. Since we're kind of talking about the performances, I do have a quote from, from Lee Khan Shen, who plays Shao Kahn. And this is in reference to, to the way Tai Ming Liang directs actors or even sort of blocks scenes. And the quote is, there are instructions on actions. For example, with going to the bathroom or drinking a glass of water, there are many ways to complete the action, but it's up to me to decide how to carry it out, how to complete the action in order to make the action interesting and lively. I mean, it's just one quote, but it does sound like there is a a large focus on giving the actors freedom to kind of do do what they feels right rather than sort of micromanaging them into doing things a certain way. And this becomes more clear when the camera is back further and it's a long take and we're just holding. They're allowed to move or stay still and both are acceptable. I think it's interesting to to know that there's that sort of trust there. We've both been on film sets where there's either a lack of direction to the actor or there's maybe a focus on not the right thing. You know, on on one hand, I do kind of wonder, is this the direction that every actor that timing Liang would, would give? Or is it because there's this rapport, this trust, this relationship? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But going back to what my point was going to be is, we've been on these sets where there's over direction or under direction. And I can't speak for you, but it feels like it's very rare that there's the right direction, or at least what I would view as the right direction. There's focus on how somebody walks into a room or directing an actor to walk normally. Well, I don't know what that means. I know I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but to just be able to say to your actor, this is what is happening, or this is where your character's at in this sequence, or you tell me where your character's at, and just having that collaboration and that trust, and to just be able to lock down the camera and let people move in and out. It's just, I mean, with all due respect, people don't make films like this. No. Well, and another thing is that I think most filmmakers want to be in control of the rhythm of the film and controlling where the viewer is looking. But someone like Tai Ming Liang and there's other directors like this would say the actor can have that freedom and the viewer can have that freedom to scan the frame, find what's interesting in the frame. Part of what he does is we're observing these characters in their environment, in their world, and it feels real because it's not just the exciting moments that's the the dull boring moments or what are traditionally considered the dull boring moments and it's like the character is real in that moment it's not like the character exists only between action and cut that's rare too if that makes sense what i'm trying to say i think one of those moments that i kind of felt that and i guess even now i feel that it's later in the film and it's when ozzy and uh, Ping are in the back of the cab, and it's Shao Kahn's father who is the cab driver. And it's you might disagree with me on this one, but I felt like that cab ride sequence where it's just silence.
to me was more tense and more uncomfortable than the previous sequence with them trying to sell the motherboards to the other arcade. No, I agree. Absolutely. It's a conversation that's part cinematography, part performance, part just filmmaking, I don't know, theory and bravery. I mean, it's all these things that combine to make a moment like this. You know, as far as the technical side of things, I'd actually like to jump in and talk about one of your favorite topics. Okay. That would actually be editing. Let's talk about the editing. I'm sure you'll have a lot more to say on this, but I absolutely loved the cross-cutting that frequently happened. Just the way that it was conveying information and where people were at. And it really did sell the fact that these characters are on a sort of collision course. And it's not until later that you get the full grasp or understanding of it. But I thought that worked really, really well. And I thought that was a, a great decision as far as the edit went. I think this is present right from the very beginning, where by introducing one character, then cutting to the next character, and then continuing that cross-cutting pattern, you're inviting the viewer to make connections. You know, you may make the connection that these characters are going to, at some point, intersect, which they obviously do. But I think even on a thematic level, that cross-cutting is inviting you to make connections between the characters. Speaking of maybe Ozzy and Shao Kahn, these characters appear very different and they're in very different worlds. He's in his bedroom alone studying and Ozzy's stealing coins from a phone booth that even though they appear like they're completely different in different worlds, that there are similarities between them. There's more similarities than differences. It can be the fact that they're they're both sort of drawn to this rebellion. It can be that they're deeply lonely characters and that they both desire some sort of connection. The cross-cutting is implying that although they appear very different, they're actually closer than you, you maybe first think. I think it kind of ties between editing and the cinematography, but and it's been something that we've talked about before, just the willingness to hold on certain shots and sequences where whether it be more modern films or more Western filmmakers would be trying to cut into close-ups or singles or insert or whatever the case may be. Maybe we keep talking about it because of the films that we were watching and the fundamentals and the style of those filmmakers. But to me, that's just something that I love and I have a a great fondness for. I just like watching a scene play out with there not needing to be a cut every 30 seconds. Four seconds. Okay. It is editing, but it's also the editing being disciplined and reserved. Cinematography has its place in this conversation in the sense that the camera needs to be set in a place where you are either covering all the characters or you're communicating something through the mise-en-scene, the character's positioning within the frame. In terms of editing, I think 
all editors will agree that the editing discussion isn't a just isn't just about when to cut, it's when not to cut or when to hold. And we talk about this a lot because we both, like you said, the films, and we both appreciate this. And in this film, I do think there's a thematic reason for filming it this way. I do think it, it ties into the theme of isolation and loneliness. And But it doesn't always have to be, if you have a, a long take master or one or whatever, it doesn't always have to be like, well, this is communicating this information for me personally. Sometimes it can just be, we have to cover this conversation between these two characters. And the default response to how do we do that is usually a master and over the shoulders. And that's just the way you cover a conversation. You have to get through this conversation. And whether it be exposition or, you know, just two characters talking about something that is character building, that's usually the go-to. And it's like, well, why does it have to be that way? Just like when I was talking about the performances earlier, I think you know, my taste tends to lean towards if you can do it in less, that's what you should do. If shooting it in this way is supporting your themes, your character building, that's the best case scenario. But I don't think it always has to be that way. Sometimes it's just like, this is the best way to accomplish this scene. Do you disagree with that? No, not at all. The scene I think about is the, when the three of them, Ozzy, Aping, Akui, they're all at that restaurant. They're having drinks and they're they're eating or whatever. Their table's towards the opening, the door to enter in the camera setup outside of the restaurant. And it's framing all three of them at a table. They're blocked in this triangle position. While they're talking and drinking, one camera setup will accomplish this perfectly. Mm-hmm. And that's what they do. Now, he does cut when... When Ah Ping gets up to go to the bathroom and it becomes this conversation between just the two of them, there is a cut there. But again, I think that's a motivated cut and there's a good reason to do so. But even with that, it wasn't necessary. I mean, that that master could have worked and it, it, it worked really well. And it gives the performances a little freedom and it gives, you know, you have to be focused on these things, obviously, but it gives the performances freedom. As me as a movie watcher, I like it because I can I can pick up little things within the frame. I'm not always being told to look at this. I can look at this character. I can look at their reaction or I can look at the person who's speaking. I can look at what's happening in the background if I choose to. Yeah. And actually, if I could kind of jump in on that, though, you know, we we talked about like setting up those masters and not moving the camera so actors, characters can kind of come in and out. And it helps create the fact that there's this world outside of the frame. What you just said, I think also helps reinforce that too. That scene that you're speaking of where it is just the master and you know your your eyes can kind of look around to see well what else what else is happening. And I guess I'd say it's a complaint that I have about modern and more western films and maybe some of the more popular stuff is it feels like the only thing that exists are the characters that are on screen. The world is only this small little box. And when it cuts, everything ceases to exist. It's just this weird feeling that I get personally. And moviegoers have gotten accustomed to the style. And I can only speak for myself and say like, well, this is what's exciting about these types of shots and movies for me. When I encounter quick editing for no reason, there's no purpose for it. And I kind of lose interest. Whereas a scene like this, this is what's exciting to me is I have the freedom to control where I'm looking. And so that's why I never get bored. I can, 
am I missing things? Am I not looking at what some people may say I should be looking at? That's possible. But you can change between viewings if you do watch movies over and over, which I tend to do if possible. You can get, I think, more out of a scene with repeat viewings. And that's just my perspective and that's my taste. So I, I know that doesn't apply to everyone. And I think that there's probably like a, a group of people that would look at this scene and just they'd refer to it as sloppy filmmaking or they would discredit it. But for me, I, I actually really, really liked it. So it's actually when Shao Kahn was at the roller skating rink. As he's like skating about, the framing's not perfect. His head sort of gets cut off in the frame. Focus dips or, you know, becomes softer focus. There's just these things that people that really focus on the technical side of things be like, no, you know, that's not right. You're you're doing this wrong. But I really just appreciated the the rawness to it, I guess I'd, I'd call it. They were content enough to just this is what we're going to shoot. This is how we're going to shoot it. And we're not going to be worried about the, and I'm using air quotes, fundamentals. Thoughts? This is one of those things that I think comes up frequently when we're watching older films, is that we've gotten to a point where camera stabilization has become more advanced. And now we're at a point where it's cheap enough that more people have access to it. And it becomes one of these things where it's like the smoother your shot is, the more professional it is or something. And you watch these these older films that are before the Steadicam was invented. Or that just wasn't in the budget. With a film like Rebels of the Neon God that is post Steadicam, but I'm sure there just was not time or money. My point being that I don't think that technology would have improved that scene you know, maybe it would have had the opposite effect. That it would have been too clean and too perfect. From a cinematography or like visual perspective, anything that just jumped out at you? I just have two shots that are stuck in my head. I have two as well. Let's see if we match. They're not going to be the same. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. First one for me is Shao Kahn puts his hand through the window. He's bleeding and he runs out of his room into the bathroom. And the action of him out of his room and into the bathroom is covered in a, a wide. And we start on, I guess, like a living room, maybe like a dining room kind of thing. There's a table. The father's eating on the right. The mother's kind of sitting on the left. There's a huge separation between them. Shao Kahn runs out into the bathroom. And just that initial frame where the father and the mother are separate, showing that even within the family, I think here, there's this disconnect. This time represented just through distance of the blocking of the two characters. I was kind of thinking about this and 
food is always a big part of Tai Ming Liang's films. Eating is a big part of his films. And especially in Chinese culture, meals are like this communal experience, this thing you share. And the idea that the father's just over there eating by himself, where his son's in the bedroom, his wife's over here doing something else. And there's just this complete disconnect between this family. But as that scene plays out, like the mother gets up, she rushes into the bathroom. And so now we have both the mother and Shao Kahn obscured by the wall. We don't see them. We hear them talking. We, the father gets up and sort of goes to the bathroom. He stands in the doorway. He, he's sort of cut off halfway by the doorframe. Just discussion about, you know, he broke the window. He's bleeding. So the father walks into the bedroom, disappearing, then comes back out. And so what's significant to me about this is getting back to what we talked about, this idea that it's okay for characters to disappear within the frame. The temptation might be, oh, as that father walks to the bedroom, we need to have a shot in the bedroom. We need to see the father enter. We need to see the father look at the broken window. But it's not necessary. We know he walks in, he sees the broken window. This can be covered in one setup. But then there's also this idea that the father is in this way separated from the mother through the blocking because he's standing outside and she's in there. So it's creating this disconnect between Shao Kahn and his mother and Shao Kahn and his father and the differences between his relationship with these two people based on the blocking. One's hidden with him and one's visible outside. I already know you like the shot, but what is it that stands out to you about the shot? I kind of touched on it when discussing the way that characters are introduced you know, over the course of the film, how we get a sense of them and who they are. That's exactly how I felt watching this scene in this sequence. I, I thought that this gave you a ton of information about this family unit. And, you know, you touched on it, the fact that father's eating, the mother's not. You get a sense of distance. Yeah, I, I don't really have much more to add to it. And I may be mistaken here, but towards the end of that scene, the father, he's even closer to the camera. So he's appearing larger. He kind of comes off as more of the larger imposing figure within there. The dialogue can be all about he cut his hand. How did he cut his hand? You know, What the hell were you doing kind of thing? But then just through character movement and character blocking, we get a sense of who the characters are. We get a sense of their relationship to each other. And we're also supporting one of the themes of the film, which is this, this disconnect between people that you're sharing a space with. I maybe don't have all the details memorized, but it's one shot that when I think of this film, it's what I think of. Yeah. If I could also touch on that same scene, there's something that I really appreciated about this film. And again, there's like the rawness and how maybe it's not the most technically sound, which I say as a compliment to it. If I'm not mistaken, it's lit by this single overhead light. And it is kind of like that light is kind of blown out. Like, it's, it's not like your traditional, we have this ball, probably some diffusion, uh, and then we have a kicker over here. It's, it's kind of raw with that light, and they didn't shy away from just setting the camera and not worrying about the fact that, hey, this is maybe a little too bright. Thought, any thoughts on that, or am I just picking up on something that doesn't matter? That's what definitely matters. It's, um, it's one of those things that would traditionally be quote-unquote fixed, 
And here it's like, that's what it looks like in this location. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll admit it's not, I get distracted by the blocking. That's the stuff that's so fascinating and exciting to me that, you know, that's one of those details I didn't really pick up on. Again, a very minor thing, and I'm not even upset about it. I kind of like it. We are in agreement about that because that was one of my three. Okay. Let's see if you have my second or third one as well. I'm really confident I don't. Okay, let's hear it. The second one is Ozzy is pushing his damaged motorcycle and Shao Kahn has been following him and doing loops and kind of circling back. And he finally gets to this point where he's going to pull up right next to him and say something to him, ask him if he needs help. And this is the moment, I guess he's kind of been waiting for this entire time to finally say something. Throughout the film, there's all these shots of them in the same location. They're just walking past each other. And, you know, Ozzy is sort of oblivious to the fact that he even exists. So this is like the moment he's been waiting for. It's pulling back with them as he pushes and he rides. um, And it's framed as a two shot. What's that? And then (laughs) uh, it's a shot where there's two. (laughs) So uh, a two shot, it might be like a medium or something on both of them or a medium long. Ozzy finally like totally rejects him and continues walking. Shao Kahn sort of stops right there and the camera continues to pull back and he just gets smaller and smaller in frame. We have essentially two setups in one shot. Now we do have a little bit of camera movement here, but we're framing this two shot with the expectation like this might be the moment they connect. And immediately when that idea is rejected, Shao Kahn is completely devastated. The the idea of the camera just pulling back and him getting smaller and smaller in that frame just emphasizing that sort of loneliness in that moment. I like that. And I like that it's accomplished in one shot. I mean, it's just good blocking and good camera choreography. Part of what I love, I think, is just Lee's expression as he's just sitting there. But I know that wasn't one of yours. Do you have anything to add to that scene? No, I I don't. And I, I think that's great sequence. I absolutely do. If anybody's listened to us the last few episodes, you know, you kind of made it a running joke at this point about two shots and them not existing, but that sequence is absolutely perfectly sold as a two shot. I don't need singles. I don't need close-ups on on either of them. I You can glean a lot from both of them as that plays out. Okay. What is your next shot that sticks with you. Okay, well, this is actually number three, and it's just a fleeting moment, but I'm skipping ahead to it because I feel like it complements what you just said. It's kind of a blink and you miss it moment, but it's when Ozzy and Shao Kahn are at the arcade, and Shao Kahn is like sitting there. I think he's playing like Street Fighter or something like that. And then Ozzy actually sits down at the arcade cabinet next to him. And with the way that they're blocked, it's almost like their bodies are just inches apart from each other. But then as as your eye kind of like travels up the body, you can see like that separation and that distance. It's a very, very brief moment. They're this close, but there is just so much distance between them. And not just physically, but where they are as characters. 
Which you just reminded me of another thing I love, a moment in which both both parties are framed in one shot and the, the framing of it. It's Azi, Aping, and Akui are all eating. I'm a little fuzzy on the details and how we get to the shot, but there's this shot where Shao Kahn has been following them and he's also now purchased food and he's eating, but he's on like sort of like the opposite side of this hallway or this food court or whatever it is. And he's, you know, he's large in the right side of the frame. There's like this glass divide, but then you can see through the glass and you can see the three of them eating in the background together. They're out of focus or whatever. I had that as an honorable mention actually, but I'm, I'm glad that you brought it up because it's another one of those minor small moments that just the way they shot that, the way that it's blocked, it's absolutely perfect i think yeah i can just picture the him large and and shooting through the glass to see them there's that physical divide there there's also the physical distance and they're together he's alone my number two you know we've talked a little bit about geography within a scene i'd call it recognizing and realizing that space exists outside of what's in frame. It's when uh, Zi, uh, Ping, and uh, Kui, after they had eaten and been drinking like the first time that we kind of see them, uh, Ping is basically like kind of hunched over. He's vomiting next to this fence and Ozzy uh, is, you know, kind of being the good friend and, and everything. And we start to dolly over. And as we do, we see like Aqui is behind this like fence and she's in like like a construction site. As the camera dollies over, Z basically comes around and comes like over to her as she's like laying down in this construction site area. I thought that was just one of those great moments where there's all of this that exists outside the world of the frame. It was a good character moment as well for Ozzy because up to this point, he's kind of been rougher and he hasn't had a lot of like overly redeeming character moments, but you could see like a, a gentleness to him in the way that he interacts with others in that scene as well. The scenes that follow with them in the hotel room, another setup that's just locked down. She's passed out on the bed. You know, Ozzy's on the bed next to her watching TV. But Ozzy, you know, is next to her. But then he gets up and walks out of frame. Then uh, Ping sits down or lays down next to her. And it's just like this one lockdown shot. And we have all this movement through the frame. Another great shot, a shot I like. But I bring this up more to the point of redeeming moments for this character being Ozzy. I think you'd have to be crazy not to, in this moment, be a little worried for Aqui because we see this passed out girl with two guys in a hotel room. Maybe think, oh, this might go in a certain direction. And it kind of does. I mean, it does in the sense that like Ah Ping mentions it. Ozzy puts an end to it, makes sure it doesn't happen in a kind of subtle, natural way. And it's just one of those moments where you go, well, this character isn't bad guy. He's just in this place in his life where these are the things he's doing. The sequence where Shao Kahn is leaving the phone dating thing and how basically it's shot through the crack of an open door to see him going out another door. Yeah. 
That's just like a fantastic shot. I touched on it already, so I'm not going to go through it much further. But the car ride with Shao Kahn's father, the way that's shot. And that's one of those where there is a little bit more cutting around. But at the same time, I, I thought that that was one of the most uncomfortable sequences of the film. Just like the tension that's that just naturally comes in that moment. Anything else that you want to touch on or talk about visually or cinematography wise? No. There's one more element about this film that I think we both kind of want to discuss. The score is incredible. I think it's also worth noting that Rebels of the Neon God won a Golden Horse Award, which is a Taiwan-based film festival for Best Original Score. I don't think I'm always the best at articulating my thoughts about music. So, Joe, you might have to help me out a little bit here. But it's one of these things where it's it feels sort of modern, but also there's like this atmosphere. There's like this droning kind of thing. I do think there's a bit of like that electronic feel that does kind of go with the idea of like this sort of new modern city. The elements like the arcade games and and all these things where these characters are trying to adapt to this new modern world. And the score feels like has history to it, but it's like updated to feel more modern, belongs in this world. But there's also this undertone of this drone that creates a lot of atmosphere. And I have to admit, since watching this film, I'll just randomly think I hear the score. I don't know if there's like this tone, this frequency that's present in this score that's also just sort of present in houses, apartments, buildings, air conditioning, whatever. I know this sounds crazy, but I'll just be doing something else. And all of a sudden I'll hear like, oh, that sounds like sort of like that thumping and that droning of the score. It's certainly memorable for me. And I certainly think it fits. But what are your thoughts? I'd argue it's sparsely used. There is basically just this composed music and it's used sparingly when and where it's used. It really is being used to amplify what is happening or what is about to happen. It's I think that it's used very effectively and probably more effectively than a lot of scores that have multiple compositions or having different themes. It's kind of an interesting element because it is a, a baritone piece of music. I don't think a lot of scores will focus on generally you'd have multiple arrangements, but this one is just fixated on like a, a smaller selection of sounds versus brass and wind and, and strings and, and everything like that. You touched on how it feels like a history to it, but also very modern. To me, I, I think that summarizes it very well, and that makes it stand out to me as effective even more. Thinking about Taiwan and the history there, it's sort of this, this collection of Western influence with classic Chinese fundamentals. There's a lot of pulling in multiple directions. And I think when it comes to Rebels of the Neon God, one of the reasons this film 
film does work for me is because there's a lack of identity that these characters have. And this score, I think, amplifies it because this is a conflicted score. Like you said, traditional but modern. I absolutely love the score. To me, it was one of the biggest highlights. I agree. I, I love it, too. I don't remember exactly when it happens, but that beginning of the film, we open, and all we hear is rain. They're in the phone booth, and then we're cross-cutting between them in the phone booth and Shao Kahn at home with the incident with the glass where he cuts himself. And I don't remember when it happens, but at a certain point, we get that title screen, and that's when that music kicks in. Just ambient rain, sound from the environment, no music. And then we get that title, we get that that score. It's just a great moment when you first experience that score. All right. So uh, as we kind of close down our discussion of Rebels of the Neon God... Uh, Justin, how'd you watch this film? Fairly recently, there was a new Blu-ray of this released by Big World Pictures, who's now fairly recently releasing through a partnership with Vinegar Syndrome. It's a great Blu-ray. It looks great. Um, Comes with a booklet, with an essay, and more of a featurette, really, that they're calling a selected scene commentary by Andy Gomes. I would recommend this if you're into this film. I mean, this is something we talk about here because we still are into physical media. If you're into that, this featurette, as far as I know, is not available anywhere else. It may be available on the old DVD. If you're looking to kind of understand the themes, I think it breaks down really well what certain visual metaphors represent, the connection between the characters, what the characters are struggling with. And um, if you're just struggling with the film or want to know a little bit more about the film from a story point of view, I think this is a good place to go for a little bit more insight. I will also include some of the interviews I found with Tai Ming Liang during the course of a little research in the show notes. I think he's a interesting interviewee and uh, the way he talks about his work is, is really compelling. So if you're interested in him or his work, check all that stuff out. Uh, Joe, do you have anything? I actually wanted to reference one of the reviews that I had read, I stumbled upon on rogerebert.com. I actually really enjoyed that review. I thought that there was some good insight there, maybe a little bit more substance. So I would recommend taking a little bit of time with that. Justin, this was your pick, so I'll put you on the spot. I do have some things that I I don't really care for throughout the film. Tai Ming Liang is a filmmaker I love, but I, I would not say this is, you know, one of his his top films. So it comes down to, again, if I'm recommending this new filmmaker and one of his films to someone, do I start with a film like this, which I think is a little bit more accessible, or do I start with something a little bit later that I think is a little bit better. Um, I don't know. But yeah, I recommend this. I would recommend this to anyone who's interested in Asian cinema. I think been a fan of Edward Yang or any sort of the Taiwanese new wave films, I think you'll see a lot of the similarities in, in this. And so, yeah, I'd recommend it to anyone who's kind of interested in, in these films or Asian cinema. 
I would recommend it to filmmakers because I think there's a lot to study here. You know, even if your style doesn't necessarily match up with this and you don't necessarily want to tell stories through long takes and wide compositions, I think there's kind of other things to take away from it. Look at the blocking and look at the way the story's told visually. Think about if you can kind of include visual metaphors that don't feel like visual metaphors. I'm not saying this is the only film or the only filmmaker who does this well, but I think he does do it well. And from what I've learned about this film and Lee's connection to the film, it's like get to know your actors and maybe bring a little bit of that actor's real life experience to the film if you can, because it will enhance the film. It will enhance the performance. So, Joe, do you have any final takeaways and to whom would you recommend the film, if anyone? I think one of my big takeaways with this one, this is a really, really good film if people are looking for multi-layered films. If somebody comes into this film and only looks at what's at the surface, I I think you're missing the point of the film. And I think that you're missing a whole nother world that's that's underneath. To kind of spin off of that, I, I would recommend it, especially for visual storytellers. I think I would be a, a harder recommend of this film for filmmakers than anybody else, because you can learn a lot from what is being communicated visually, visual language. Um, you know, you touched on it in your final thoughts, but how things play out, how to, how to let your actors progress within an environment, within a scene. Yeah. We will be back in two weeks with another episode. Do you want to talk about what we will be talking about next episode? Next up on the docket, we're going to continue our journey through Asian cinema, but this time uh, it's going to be something a little bit more modern. Park Chan-wook's film from 2016, The Handmaiden. So have you seen The Handmaiden? I have not. Well, that's good. I have seen it. I've watched it once, but Park Chan-wook is actually a director that I've really, really enjoyed his films, his way he tells stories. You know, clearly, I think most people will know him from his Vengeance trilogy. Honestly, Old Boy is one of my favorite modern films, which kind of may surprise some of our listeners based off of everything else we've been talking about and how fundamentally different it is from something like Yee or Blue or any number of other films. He is a filmmaker that I appreciate as well. But yeah, this is just one that, you know, I've never gotten around to seeing. Um, not because I didn't want to, just, you know, just one of those ones I missed. But I look forward to it. In all honesty, I haven't seen it since it initially released. So uh, even though this is a rewatch for me, it's a film that is long overdue for another viewing. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, share the podcast with somebody who might enjoy it. If you want to let us know whether you agree or disagree with our opinions on the film, or if you have any thoughts or questions about the show, you can email us at scenebyscenepodcast at gmail.com. 
If you'd like to follow us on Letterboxd, I can be found at letterboxd.com slash Justin Johnson, and Joe can be found at letterboxd.com slash jrlefebre83. Join us in two weeks for our next episode for Park Chan-wook's 2016 film, The Handmaiden. You don't have to look at the set anymore. I mean, the movie's over. Your movie was over. That's what you said. There's nothing going on in movies right now. Great movie, huh? So refreshing to see something like this after all these cop movies. Have you seen a lot of movies here? What are you so crazy about movies for? Obviously, they don't watch enough movies. That's part of your problem, you know. You haven't seen enough movies. All of life's riddles are answered in the movies. Do you have any experience in motion pictures? Quite a bit of experience. I'm uh, an active renter at Blockbuster. I love the fact that you did all this work. I think it will help you later, but not on this movie. Sorry, can we cut? Still rolling. You know, oh. No, not still rolling. Cut, 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 cut. And cut! That great work, everybody. That's a wrap.